0: Day on Divine Truth Podcast. But yet, listen church, the Bible
1: never allows us to think that meditation has achieved its purpose for us unless it results in practical application. Because listen church, truth leads to action. And there is no value in a quote-unquote mountaintop experience unless it helps us live while we're down in the valley, which is imminent.
0: This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition, live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed.
1: book of Philippians chapter number two and after you have found that out of respect for God's word if you would please stand as we read our text once again Philippians chapter two beginning in verse number 12. This is the word of God wherefore my beloved as ye have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask You this morning that You would make Your Word clear to us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. As a young person growing up, Christianity was generally reduced to this statement. Oh, you go to that church where you can't do anything or have fun. And really such was the view of Christianity in the area that I lived where I first encountered Christianity. Christianity was thought by many as something that really took your freedom. It took your liberty, it took your ability to do what you wanted to do, to do what you wanted to be your own person. You know, boring clothes, hair up, and no makeup. Because if you actually wore makeup and looked attractive, you might incite lustful desires, and we don't want to do that. The ancient monks used to quote-unquote fight the lust of the flesh By withdrawing into monasteries and living their life with no worldly possessions. And they believed that poverty and sacrifice made them closer to God. I don't know who was the first person who thought that being spiritual meant withdrawing from the world. But that idea has wormed its way into Christianity very, very early. And it has had detrimental effects on Christianity ever since. In the early days of the church, a Syrian monk by the name of Simon Stolitus sat on top of a 50 foot high rock in order to avoid contact with the world. An Egyptian hermit by the name of Anthony lived most of his life in the desert. And the list goes on and on of people that thought by withdrawing from society, withdrawing from the world, that that would make you a better believer, that would make you a better Christian, that would make you more holy. God would see your sacrifice, God would see your devotion, and He would help you better to become more holy. And these men were thought to be more spiritual primarily because of their withdrawal. But church, the Bible does not support that kind of view of spirituality at all. I mean, no Christian should ever say that spending time alone with God is unnecessary, especially time spent in prayer. But yet, listen, church, the Bible never allows us to think that meditation has achieved its purpose for us unless it results in practical application. Because, listen, church, truth leads to action. And there is no value in a quote-unquote mountaintop experience unless it helps us live while we're down in the valley, which is imminent. Instead of being secluded, instead of living by a list of man-made rules, what the Scripture calls for is sanctification. And you say, well, pastor, isn't sanctification living by a set of rules? Yes, it's living by a set of rules, but there's God's rules. There are God's laws. They're not man's rules or man's laws. But with God's laws, he puts within us, he's implanted in us, the ability and the desire to want to follow those rules. Huge difference. You can follow a list of man-made rules and your heart and your life is dark toward God. You can follow a list of religious rules, religious regulations, dress the right way, look the right way, have the right style of hair, drive the right kind of car, and die and go to hell. Because it was all on the outside, it was all a facade, it was all a conformity to those rules, and was never done because of anything implanted within the heart. And we don't need to conform to a position, especially a man-made position. We need to conform to the scriptures. And we need to work on our sanctification. We need to be conformed to the position that sanctification is that process where we are brought into conformity to the position that we have been given in justification. Justification. You remember from last week that in the legal declaration of justification, we have been declared righteous by God, although we are not righteous. We have been legally declared righteous. But there's not only a legal declaration. There's also a forensic reality that we have not only been declared righteous by a legal declaration from God, but we have forensically been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ at faith, at salvation. We are declared righteous by God, and we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone in Jesus alone. And ne- but neither one of those things, folks, actually makes you righteous. It's just a declaration. It's just forensics. But neither one of those things actually makes you righteous. Sanctification is the process that actually makes you and I righteous. Because as we're going to see later, church, that's the point. The point is not for God to save you and then leave you here aimlessly wandering around the world and then take you to heaven when you die. No, the purpose of your salvation is for you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the point. If there was ever no sanctification, if there is never a conforming to the image of Christ in a person's life, that is because there's never been salvation. And Christ's likeness, church, is the fruit that naturally follows and sovereignly follows faith. If you ever want to doubt the biblical evidence of salvation... All you need to do is look at the parables of Jesus Christ. And for lack of time, we're not going to go through all the parables that was taught by our Lord. We did that about a year ago. But suffice it to say, church, that the parables that Christ told were not just cute little stories. When I was growing up, parables were always described this way. And you've probably heard this. That parables are, quote, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Earthly stories with a heavenly... Listen, church, that's not what parables are at all. Parables are told by Christ to give characteristics of the kingdom of God. They're like the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes do not tell us what we're going to be in the future kingdom. The Beatitudes do not tell us new poor in spirit, meek, humble, thirsting after truth and righteousness... They, those don't tell us what we're gonna be in the kingdom, and they don't tell us what we're striving to be for now. The Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 tell us what the Christian is now. If you are a Christian, it's because you've recognized your spiritual bankruptcy. If you are a Christian and you, it's because you have faith and hunger and truth for righteousness. And one of the key areas of the parable of the seed and the sower, for example, in Matthew chapter 13, tells us several things, but one of the things it tells us is that most of the people that hear the seed will respond with less than genuine salvation. The seed, of course, in that parable being the word of God, most who hear it will not respond genuinely. A lot of people will respond, but most of them will not respond with genuine salvation. And another point that that parable unmistakably makes is that true conversion will result in the process of sanctification because the ground in that parable that truly received the seed did what church it produced fruit the fruit of sanctification like i said before god does not save us in order to keep us the way that we always have been i thank god that i'm not what i used to be I know that I'm not what I'm going to be, but I thank God that I'm not the heathen I used to be. I'm just a heathen I am now. But trust me, the heathen you see before you now today in 2022 is more holy by the grace of God than the heathen you saw in 2021. Certainly better than the heathen you would have known in 1985. Better than the heathen in 1991, right Mrs. Agner? You ain't got to agree quite so quick. But I thank God I'm not what I used to be. And that's only by grace. That's only by faith. That's only by the mercies of God. God did not save you, church, to leave you aimlessly the way you've always have been. Because sanctification is that process where God takes the legal declaration of your righteousness and the forensic declara- reality of your righteousness and makes you practically Holy. Our families today, church, need to see holiness in our lives of those who claim to be Christians. I am appalled at some of the things that Christians allow in their life. Our families, folks, your children, your grandchildren, need to see holiness in your life. Your neighbors need to see it. Your coworkers need to see it. Other people in the church need to see it. Now, when we fail at holiness, which we do a lot... There's always grace, there's always forgiveness. But church, listen, the weakness of the flesh is no excuse for the process of sanctification to not take place in somebody's life. Let me ask you a question this morning, church. In our homes, are we showing the process of salvation? Let me ask you something, moms and dads. In your home, are you showing your children the process of sanctification working in your life? Let me tell you this, and listen to this very, very quickly, very, very intently. When your children, listen to me, when your children or your grandchildren, when they hear godliness come out of your mouth, but they see, they see wickedness in your life, you point them to heaven, but you lead them to hell. When they hear godliness coming out of your mouth, but see wickedness in your life, you say, this is the way, walk ye in it, but practically say, here's a, here's a path to hell. Because that's the way we live if we're not careful and if we're not involved in this process of sanctification and as we saw last week in verse 12 of our text sanctification is absolutely the work of man but it does not stop there because there's another dimension of our sanctification. We need to remember several things or three things that we saw last week in our process of sanctification. Being the work of man. We need to remember our representative and we saw that in the first part of verse 12. And we saw that by the first word, wherefore. And what Paul is doing by that word, wherefore is pointing back to the example of Jesus Christ in verses 5-11 through particularly verses 5-8 through and because this is your representative, you live this way. And how do we remember our representative? We remember our our representative because of humility because of submission and because of his obedience to the word of God not only do we remember our representative but we remember our requirement and our requirement folks is to be obedient to the word of God and Paul uh this church Because not only they obeyed, if you look in verse 12, but they obeyed even in his absence. Church, listen, if you use the excuse for living like the world because you do not have any spiritual support, the Bible doesn't give us that excuse. Because all throughout the Word of God, there are people that live for God that did not have spiritual support, that did not have spiritual help, but they live for God. And one of the examples that we saw last week was Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? He had an ungodly family, was in an ungodly palace, was in with an ungodly woman, was in an ungodly jail. But the Bible says that God made everything that he do to what? Prosper. Prosper. And so we need to remember our representative. We need to remember our requirement. And number three, we need to remember the sanctification is the work of man by remembering our responsibility. Church, listen, you and I are to be absolutely active in our sanctification. Sanctification, folks, listen, it's not about letting go and letting God. That is an unscriptural terminology. We don't let go and let God. We are active. Paul said in verse 12, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But there's another dimension. Not only is salvation the work of man, but salvation is the work of God. And that's a paradox, isn't it? That's two truths that seem to be contradictory that are both true. Sanctification is the work of man absolutely 100%. But sanctification is the work of God absolutely 100%. And I gave you some examples of spiritual paradoxes last week that we won't go through again. But sanctification is absolutely the work of God. Having presented in verse 12 the role of the believers in the sanctification... Paul now in verse 13 focuses on God's role in the believer's sanctification. And there's four, three or four or five things that I want you to see this morning. Letter A, the person of our sanctification. While the believer, listen church, while the believer is working out, verse 12, God is working in, verse 13. Look at verse 13. For it is God. Stop right there. That is the person of our sanctification. Because listen, church, without the reality of verse 13, the fulfillment of verse 12 would be an impossibility. Without the working of God in our life, we would never be able to work out our own salvation. Though we have a role, though we have a responsibility, though we have a requirement ourselves to do, it must start inside with the work of God. Jesus said in John chapter 15, beginning in verse number 4, notice what Jesus says, Abide in me. Whose work is that, church? In grammar, you can put an understood you in front of that sentence where Jesus could be saying grammatically, You abide in me. So whose job is it to remain in Christ? That's our job. That's what Jesus says. That's our work for our sanctification. He says, You abide in me. And then what happens? I abide in you. See, that's God's part. My part is, is I remain in God. God's part is, is that He remains in me. You see, it's a dual operation. As the branch, He goes on to say in verse 4, cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that, what? Abideth in me, that's man's part, and I in him, that's God's part. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. So what is the process, folks, of sanctification that brings about the most spiritual fruit? Me a remaining, which is what abide literally means, me remaining in God, in Christ, and Christ remaining in me. It's my work, it's his work. I'm working out he, what he's implanted in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Because only as verse 13 is a reality, will verse 12 become a possibility. God's part in the believer's sanctification is that it is God, in verse 13, that is doing the work. Church, listen, God's a personal God, isn't He? You're God's personal. He had him, and because He's personal, He takes a personal, active role in the working out in His people's lives. And that personal concern can be especially seen in how he works in the believer's life. The God of the Bible is so personal that he has unimaginable love for the fallen sinful mankind. He has unimaginable love for people who have rebelled against Him, blasphemed Him, and vilified Him. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that literally whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Christ came and died so that everyone who would ever believe in Him would have eternal life. And for those of us who belong to him, he has, no, he has such a greater love for us that we cannot even imagine. In Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet Isaiah says in verse 8, But now, O Lord, thou art our... What? Boy, I'm glad the creator of the universe is my father. Are you glad this morning that the creator of the universe is your father? But now, O Lord, thou art our father, and we are the clay. Paul said in Romans 9, you are the potter. We are the clay, and you make us the way you want us to be. Our Father, we are the clay, and thou art our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 9, and call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Listen, church, the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent creator and sustainer of the universe loves his children with an everlasting love and kindness. And God protects them according to his everlasting covenant of grace cleanses them, and forgives them with an the everlasting grace Is found in Jesus Christ. He calls us, He gifts us, and He empowers us by the person of the Holy Spirit for spiritual service with everlasting impact. Well, you and I are involved in something this morning in the process of our sanctification that makes us more holy. You and I are involved in something this morning, church, that has eternal impact. He sanctifies them and He will glorify all those of which He is justified, bringing them into His heavenly kingdom to live with Him throughout all eternity. No wonder the Apostle Paul could proclaim in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, "All oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past founding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? God doesn't need our advice, does he? At least he doesn't need mine. I give pretty terrible advice. Well, I'm never coming to you for counseling. I give God pretty terrible advice. When I give you advice, it's divine. Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed him again, for of him, Paul says, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You just see Paul just bursting out in praise in that passage. And this is one of the many reasons why, church, that the study of theology is so vital. And the notion that says, I hear this all the time, that I don't need theology, just give me Jesus. I don't need expository preaching. Just give Jesus. Or as one pastor said to me, I just love Jesus. I don't need theology. Listen, folks. That brings absolutely no lasting sanctifying power. You can say all day that I love Jesus. Let me tell you something. The man sitting down there on the street corner high on pot will probably tell you that he loves Jesus. A man sitting down there under a bridge in Richmond drunk, out of his mind will probably tell you that he loves Jesus, but that by itself has absolutely no lasting sanctifying power. It's the theology, when we know God, when we know our God theologically, intellectually, and experientially, that is really what's able to connect us to God, and that is when the process of sanctification comes into full view. When we know God in those ways, and the only way the Philippian believers, or us, would ever be able to work out our own salvation, is to remain in living contact with our God. Because as Paul says in verse 6 of Philippians 1, that He who He started this work, right? He started this work. And because He started this work, He has promised to fulfill this work and do the work until the day of Christ. Because He began the work, He is the only way that is going to be carried out to His conclusion. Every part, every point of sanctification is because of what he is doing in our life. Jesus said in John chapter 1 verse 12, but as many as received him to them gave what? He power. Listen, our salvation is not up to us. Our salvation is not our power. Jesus said in verse 1 of John, verse 12 of John 1 that he gave us the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly with than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. You see, folks, that's the dual work of sanctification. Paul says, I am how? By the grace of God in me. That's the dual work. Folks, listen, sanctification is our responsibility. We have to live holy. We have to confess sins. We have to do holy acts. We have to speak holy. We have to think holy. We have to do holy. But the only way we can do that is by the working of the Spirit in our hearts. That's the dual role of His work and our work. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 Paul says and being found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God. Notice that prepositional phrase by faith and so that we do not church become haughty because of our role in sanctification and this, the, the truth here will shatter and bring down all pride and conceit. And this is the sword to bring an end of all pride when we are taught that we can do nothing except for the grace of God that began the work. Church, listen. The person of your sanctification this morning is God. For it is God. That is the person of our sanctification. You and I have a responsibility you and I have things that we need to do and we looked at those things last week in some detail. But the work of God is the person of our sanctification. Number 1, not only the person of our sanctification, but I want you to notice letter B, the perpetuity of our sanctification. We are not given we are not just given power church for sanctification. We are given divine power that is working in us. Look at verse 13 again, which worketh in you. Stop right there which worketh in you. For it is who? God, which worketh in you. The word worketh there is energero, and it's where we get our English word energy. And it means literally to put forth power, to work effectively. Simply stated, folks, listen, God in our sanctification, God is the energizer. He is the one whose power drives our sanctification. Because in our flesh we can do nothing. It is only by his power that brings us and drives us to Christ likeness. This is another one of the reasons why we say that we are secure in Christ because it is his power that not only drives us to sanctification, but it's his power that will drive us to glorification. It is His power that expels sin and it is His power that invites holiness. We persevere only because we are energized by Him and for anyone to say that we can lose what we've been given by sovereign grace is not only to question the immutability of God but is to question the energizing power of God. All we have is because He is the omnipotent, the all-powerful God. It is important to know, folks, that we are, ju- that we are not just, just, not justified by the flesh. In Romans chapter three, verse 12, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. We are not only not justified by the flesh, but we are not sanctified or perfected by the flesh. Paul says in Galatians chapter three and verse three, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit and you are made perfect by the flesh? Listen, we're not only saved by grace in the power of God, in the power of Christ, but our sanctification is by grace in the power of Christ, the power of God. The Apostle Paul confessed in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, for I know that is in me. How many of y'all could say that this morning? I know I can with both hands up. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. No good thing. Anything good you see in me, anything right now that I get right is because of Jesus Christ. It's not because of me. Because you know why the reason I know that you can't lose your salvation, not only because that's what the Bible says, but let me tell you some folks, if I could lose my salvation, I would have a long time ago. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And I told you this verse last week. To will is to pre, is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Paul says, listen, I want to do the right thing. My, my desire, my passion, my will is to do the right thing. But man live, I tell you, I just have a tough time being able to do it. Though we have a tremendous responsibility in our, in our process of our sanctification, You and I would be hopelessly doomed in that process without the energizing power of God working in us. We are to be faithfully obedient in our work of Christ's likeness, as Paul says in verse 12, but we also must understand the balance. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse chapter 3, rather, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of who? is of God. Listen, I'm, I'm not sufficient of myself to do anything. My sufficiency is in Him. Ephesians chapter three and verse seven, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the what? Grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of whose power? His power. His power. Ephesians chapter three, verse 20, now unto Him. Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Whose power is it? According to Him. It's His power. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without in. Amen. You know why? God puts in us His power to be sanctified so all the praise and the glory goes to Him and not us. Because if you and I could boast, we would boast. Boy, God sure is lucky to have me. Boy, the day God saved me, boy, the angels sang. Right? Isn't that our attitudes? Boy, if we've learned anything on Sunday nights, we've learned that that's the attitude of a lot of Christians. That was the attitude of an entire church there in Corinth. Boy, God saved us, man, he really was lucky. The power of God. Power always comes from God. That's why again, Jesus said in John 1 12, to many as believed him to them, he gave the power. To become the sons of God. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which according to his abundant mercy. Have begotten us again unto a lively hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The power not only comes from God for our salvation. But the power comes from God for our sanctification. In Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 12. Lord thou wilt ordain peace for us. For thou also hast wrought in all our good works in us. Israel said, listen, if anything is good in us, God, you've done it. You've done it. First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 6. And there are diversities of operations, but it is all the same who? God, which worketh all in all. Second Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5. Again, we are not sufficient, but our sufficiency is in God. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 21, Make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. James chapter 1 and verse 18, Of His own will begot He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. But not only does the power of God come to us for our salvation and the power of God come to us for our sanctification, but the power of God comes to us for our service. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus says, spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, here's the great commission, go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, Jesus Christ, during His ascension, said, But ye shall receive power. When? After the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Why? Because it's His power, right? It's His working in us. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And it is all for these reasons, folks, that the work of sanctification is a perpetual work. It never ceases. The word worketh in our text there in verse 13 is a present participle and could be translated this way, for it is God that is continually working in you. It is God that's continually working in you. In Romans chapter 8 verse 29, the apostle Paul says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Why did God save us? He saved us for the sole purpose of conforming us into the image of his son. Now look up on the screen and I want you to notice the verse image there. It's the Greek word icon. It's where we get an English word icon. It speaks of likeness. It speaks of a figure. It speaks of an image. And the purpose of our redemption, the purpose of our salvation is so God through the process of sanctification can mold us into the image and the representation of Jesus Christ. Listen, the day God saved me, I haven't been perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But the day I got saved, I struggled all my life. But the day I got saved, God put in me the desire I want to be like Jesus Christ. I fail A lot. A lot. but I want to be like Jesus. I want my life to be molded to Him. That is the process of sanctification. That is why we say that the Scriptures teach that if there is no sanctification, it is because there has been no salvation. Because because salvation, rather, always brings the process of sanctification. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined; those he foreloved, he predestined. Why? To be conformed to the to the representation, to the mold of Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful Old Testament illustration of the continual working in the lives of God's people. Uh, it, it's during a, it was during a revival that came under the reign of Hezekiah. The work began with the restoration of the temple. And the Bible says Hezekiah charged the Levites in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 verse 5, and he said to them, Hear ye, hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now who? Yourselves. That's an order, command for them to do, right? You sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. And then it says in verse 11, my sons, be not now negligent. For the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, still speaking to the Levites, to serve him, that ye should minister unto him the burnt incense. And then the next day happened in verse 20, Then Hezekiah the king rose early, and gathered the rulers of the city, and went into the house of the Lord. And then the continuing in this pursuit of this revival, it says in chapter 30 in verse 1, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. And what happened here is a decree was circulated all throughout the country calling people back to the long-neglected neglected neglected uh, Passover feast. And the edict contained both warnings and promises. In verse 8 of 2 Chronicles 30, But be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, But yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into His sanctuary, which He hath sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God with the fierceness of His wrath, may turn away from you. For if ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive So they, so that they shall come again into this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if ye return to him. What did the people do? The people responded favorably according to verse 12. And Judah, and in Judah, the hand of God was, was to give them one heart to do the commandment Of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. And here's the process, church. God commanded his people to return to him and then God gave them the heart to do it. God commands us to work out our own salvation, but puts in us the ability to do it. God graciously energized the fulfillment of the command. God commands us to work out our own salvation just as He commanded Israel to return. But it is His power, it is His energy that brings about the process of sanctification. And so we see that our sanctification, the person of our sanctification, is God. Right? We see the perpetuity of our sanctification. It continues until the day of Jesus Christ. Let us see the purpose of our sanctification. What's its purpose? Well, Paul says it again in verse 13. Both to will and to do. Stop right there. Quite simply, church, what's the purpose of our sanctification? To desire to do the will of God. To desire to do the will of God. Because the will to do what is right, folks, must precede any effective work. A genuine desire to do God's will and the power to obey it originates with God. The word will there is a fellow in the Greek and refers to a thoughtful, purposeful choice. It does not refer to the mere emotion or the mere desire. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 36, incline mine heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. What did, Paul, what did the psalmist say? God, you bend my heart toward righteousness. You bend my heart toward your commandment. You bend my heart toward doing your will for my life. Ezra thanked God that God inclined the heart of King Ahasuerus in Persia. In Ezra chapter 27 and verse 7, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Who put it in the king's heart? God did. Who puts in your heart to want to obey the will of God? God does. Why, do we, why does this process of sanctification start and continue? So that you and I, according to verse 13, will not only will, but will also do. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The Solomon says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he wills. Folks, listen, God uses two means. Let me give these to you real quick. God uses two means to move the believer's will to sanctification, to holiness. First, it's called holy discontent. Holy discontent. And that's the recognition that our lives always fall short of God's holy standard. I'm reminded, I hate to keep bringing this up and I brought it up here a lot. It must must be heavy on my mind. But I'm always every time I think about this, I, I, I think about the episode of the Andy Griffith show. Not that the Andy Griffith show was good preaching, but the, but this illustration works because there was pretty bad theology in that show, but this illustration works. And that's when you remember when, when Floyd Conte uh, was in that uh, penmanship letter. Y'all remember that? And he sent this letter to this rich widow and said that he was rich and all that. And then she came to visiting and Andy just shamed him. Garrett just shamed him for being that way. And Floyd, you remember what Floyd did? Floyd went to the mirror and he said, Floyd Lawson, you're a wretch. You're a wretch. You ever done that to yourself? You're a wretch. Because folks, one of the ways that God performs the process of our sanctification is a recognition that you and I always fall short. I'm reminded of, let me give you a biblical example of this. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 6. Let's get spiritual again. I reminded you, I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And so here's Isaiah. The king is dead. The king has some issues. The king has some issues with pride. And maybe it was the king that was hiding the glory of the Lord. We're not really sure about the language that Isaiah is using there entirely. But at any rate, suffice it to say, the king is dead. And the Bible says that Isaiah saw God on his throne, high and lifted up. Listen, whenever we see God high and lifted up, it doesn't cause us to do the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Whenever we see God high and lifted up, it doesn't cause us to break out in tongues. Tongues. Whenever we see God high and lifted up, it doesn't cause us to break out in miracle healings and wondrous works. When you and I truly see the holiness of God and we truly see God for who he is and we truly become discontent with our lives, we will be like Isaiah in verse five, because here was Isaiah's response to seeing the holiness of God. It was not lifting up holy hands. It was not it was not speaking in tongues. It was not divine healings. Isaiah's response to seeing the holiness of God was what, church? It was repentance. It was realizing his sinfulness. And he said in verse 5, I said, woe is me. And if you know anything about the Hebrew language, you know that in Hebrew, whenever it's used as the word woe, it is speaking about the deepest type of uh, poverty spiritually that people can verbalize. It's a lot deeper than the English really gives us. I mean, they really are thinking really deep about their poverty. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amidst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Because, why do I see this? Because mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And listen, church, like all righteous people, we are going to be dissatisfied with our spiritual state listen the process of sanctification continues primarily because we are so dissatisfied with the way we are we want that process to continue back when i was youth pastor i had one of the teenagers come and ask me they said pastor will i ever get to a point in my life where i'm holy and i said yes but you'll feel worse thanks for the advice what do you mean I'll feel worse? You'll feel worse because you'll be so much more holy and so much discontent with who you are, you're going to strive and desire greater holiness. That's when you know you've met God, church, is when you see your sinfulness. You don't, you don't necessarily have met God. And we're learning this on Wednesday nights. You haven't necessarily met God because you get all emotional about a song. You know you've met God when you repent. When you see your wickedness. When you're dissatisfied with who you are. I hate who I am. I hate my sin. And I want to be molded into the image of Christ. That's when you know you've gotten in contact with God. And Paul says in verse 4, chapter 4, 1 Corinthians verse 4, For I know nothing of myself, yet am I not here by justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Paul knew that he even as carefully and honestly as he examined his life, he knew that in his finite mind could not always detect every sin. And his holy discontent led him to lament in the, to, the, to the letter of the church at Rome in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And there are two means that God uses to produce the will to do. That is holy dissatisfaction. Number two, it is holy aspiration. This is the positive side of discontent. He instills in us, listen church, he instills in us a genuine hatred for sin, but he cultivates in us a genuine desire for righteousness. Don't tell me you're saved, but you don't have a desire to be righteous. Don't tell me you're saved, but you don't hate your sin. You may struggle and commit it. But don't tell me you're saved and you don't hate your sin and don't love righteousness. Because above all, the believer is, will desire to be like Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect, but I follow after that if I am apprehended for that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. forgetting those things which are behind folks listen i know I, I know i preach a lot on holiness because the bible says a lot about holiness doesn't it and you may be sitting there this morning and you say you know pastor i'm just i just can't do this i just blew it guess what the person sitting next to you blew it too and guess what The person telling you to be sanctified has also blown it. That's why there's grace. Folks, you can't do anything about what happened yesterday. You can't do anything today about how you blew it yesterday. Maybe you and your husband or you and your wife got into a knockdown dragout fight. I don't know. Maybe you fussed each other all the way to church. I don't know. Maybe your attitude just stinks. Maybe you just look everywhere and say, you know what? This, This place just stinks. This church stinks. I stink. My wife stinks. My kids stinks. My home stinks. My car stinks. Everything just stinks because my attitude just stinks. You can't do anything about that yesterday. can't do anything about that. Except confess it. Live in the reality of God's grace and forgiveness. And go on. I've had people come in my office and say. You know pastor. I've actually. I actually had a young boy come in my office. Many many years ago. And say pastor there's absolutely no forgiveness for this. God's grace. Is not this deep. And all the freedom and liberty. Of that young boy's heart. When he found his freedom in Christ. When he found, actually found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. When he actually understood, listen, my past failures is no indication about what I can do tomorrow. You live in the reality of God's grace today because that's all you've got. Live in that reality. Because it is God works in you for the purpose of willing and doing of his good pleasure why ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 we are his workmanship created in christ jesus unto good works letter d real quick we see the person of our sanctification the perpetuity of sanctification the purpose of sanctification who's the person of our sanctification for it is god What's the perpetuity of sanctification? That worketh in you, continually working in you. What's the purpose of sanctification? To do and to, to will and to do. What's the pleasure of sanctification? Of his good pleasure. You see how all that works? It's God. Yeah, you and I have a responsibility. But it's God that works in you. Both to will and to do. It is God that causes us to want to do righteousness. It is God that gives us those holy aspirations. It is God that gives us our hatred of sin. Because that's His good pleasure. Boy, I can tell you one thing right now. There's nothing more in my life that I want to do than to please God. How about you? But I fail at that too. If you could make a list, Garrett, of the things that I'm good at and the things that I'm bad at, boy, my bad list would outweigh it. But you know what? I'm so thankful this morning that I don't have to reach a level of of reach a level of sanctification in order to be loved by my Father. That He comes and He takes this dirty, rotten sinner that He's trying to mold into what He wants Him to be. He takes Him and He comes down and He raises Him up to where He is. God can do in your life today what you thought impossible. God can make you into the image of a person that, that you've never thought you could be. Some of you in here this morning have lived in past in sin after sin after sin. Maybe you've lived in the habitual pattern of sin in your life as I have at times. Listen, there's absolutely nothing God can't do with your life. Maybe you're living that way right now. But there's absolutely nothing that God can't do in your life through the grace of Almighty God. The grace of Jesus Christ working in us both to will and to do of those things that bring Him pleasure. You want to bring Him pleasure this morning? Listen, your sanctification brings God pleasure. When you and I will and desire and to do His will, that brings Him pleasure. That's clearly what Paul is saying. And we want to bring God pleasure. Believers' supreme purpose is to obey, worship, worship, And glorify God. And their fulfilling of that purpose, church, is what brings glory and pleasure to Him. And that magnificent truth is one of the unique realities of Christianity. That the sovereign God of the universe takes pleasure in what he inspires, in what he empowers his redeemed people to do. That's just amazing to me. God gives gives me the desire. God gives me the power to do something. And then he takes pleasure in my obedience that he calls me to do. It's amazing to me. But that's what Paul says in verse 13. you doing in your process of sanctification? How are you at working out your your salvation? How are your holy passions? Do you will to do and desire to do the things that bring him pleasure? What's the process of sanctification? It's 100% man. 100% your responsibility. 100% my responsibility. 100% our responsibility to be conformed to the image of Christ. All of us but it's also 100% responsibility of God. 100% the working of God in our life to energize us, to give us the desire to do what brings Him pleasure. Is that in your life this morning? Are you working out what God has planted within? One word, sanctification. Hagias. to become holy, to be set apart. One word, sanctification. Two responsibilities, God and man one purpose, to will and to do what brings him pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m., as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross through the church to the world until Christ come. God bless you.